Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. Used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, you either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pellet pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni pizza ovens have continued to define the category with carbon steel shell for insulation, optimized airflow engineering for precise temperature control, and new models with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between three fuels, fire to fire. So on days when you have time to chill out with a glass of wine in the wood smoke as your log heats up, you can. And for those nights when you're in a rush, all you have to do is hook up the gas, and at the time it takes to shape your dough and chop some topping, your Uni oven will be ready to go. Learn more at uni.com. That's O-O-N-I.com. Welcome to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. This is episode 10, Pizza in Space. Every pizza is personal. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Along with Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine, and its head chef, Francisco Magoya, who together co-authored Modernist Pizza, a 1,700-page book about the art, history, and science of pizza, we'll chew over the world's most popular food with the people who have been part of its story past and are shaping its yet-to-be-told future. As this is the last episode of Season 1, we'll take a moment to reflect on pizza's long and winding path to pervasiveness. It's impossible to book pizza in the box, but... We'll do our best here, or at least freeze a few pies for future consideration. Maybe even ship some straight from Naples. We'll attend the United Nations of Pizza School, or maybe retreat to the woods, all the while finding ways to give back the way pizza has given to all of us. We'll write love letters to pen pals, read some pizza-themed kidslet, and look towards the next generation of pizza makers who maybe, just maybe, might see pizza in space. While pizza makers originally wrapped takeout slices in brown paper, they soon realized they needed a better solution. Fortunato Coco, one of New Haven's earliest pizzaioli, sought help from Strauss Alder Company, since they were known for making custom boxes for ladies' underwear. But customers ended up complaining that the pizza tasted like cardboard. So Frank Pepe of New Haven Pizza Prestige took a stab at the problem by trying another local manufacturer, National Folding Box Go. And it worked. By the 1940s, pizza boxes had become the norm.
In the 1970s, Domino's Tom Moynihan made Michigan-style boxes through their supplier, Westrock. And they were better insulated and much more durable, so they could withstand late-night deliveries to college campuses. But the crossroads of to-go and frozen came a little bit earlier, in 1962, when Totino's of Minneapolis, Minnesota, decided to freeze their pies. In 1969, they accounted for 75% of all the frozen pizza sales in the country. In 1975, they sold the company to Pillsbury for $22 million. In 2017, Totino's was the fourth best-selling brand in the U.S., with sales around $350 million. Francisco sees us through the sub-zero sphere. The pizzas that are intentionally in the frozen foods aisles are typically not good. In fact, they're terrible. And you would wonder why people even buy them. For many reasons, they all taste the same. Some of them don't even have yeast in the crust. They have chemical leaveners. And they're just weird. They're not good. I don't understand what the convenience is of having bad pizza. But within these you know, pandemic times, you had a lot of really good pizzerias shipping their frozen pizzas. And some of them did a great job, some not so great. But it turns out that a lot of people did some you know, work into figuring out how to freeze a pizza well so that it would reheat well. The best thing you can do is, first of all, don't freeze your dough. You don't want to freeze raw dough, mostly because the yeast will slowly die out completely, and then you're not going to have a good time trying to leaven or ferment your dough. Yeast is a living thing. It's going to die if it's in the freezer for too long. But if you bake your pizza with sauce on top of it real quick, just until it's, you can even like cook it if you want three quarters of the way. You go ahead and you bake it. You freeze it as quickly as you can. If you're in a pizzeria and you're fortunate enough to have a blast freezer, that is the best thing you can do. And then after that, once it's frozen, you can put cheese on top of it and then vacuum seal it and then keep it in the freezer. And it works great. The biggest killer that you have for your pizzas is going to be the cheese. Because once cheese melts, it changes. It's very hard to resurrect um, and to bring it back to its original state. So we did a few tests in which we would put like fresh cheese on top of a frozen pizza. But what seemed to work the best was to actually freeze the cheese, freeze the pizza separately, and then put the frozen cheese on top of the frozen pizza, cryovac it to about 80%. This means we didn't pull a full vacuum on it so because we didn't want to crush it either, but just enough so it would suck the air out. From the outside, we didn't want to. If we suck the air from the inside, you're going to have thin crust pizza, and so that worked really well because you know two or three months later we reheated them, and they were pretty good. But other styles, for example, if we're talking about Sicilian or New York Square, which is the same thing, the best thing you can do is bake the crust alone, no sauce, no cheese, and then when you need it, you put it back in the pan. You can thaw it in the pan, sauce and cheese on top, and it works great. It's fantastic. Same for Detroit. You can do the same thing with these. The thicker crusts, the ideal case scenario is to bake it with nothing on it, no sauce, no cheese, and then it goes back in the oven with sauce and cheese. It refreshes the crust. It makes it even crispier underneath and and the exposed rims, and it melts the cheese. And so it's just, it's a really good way to bring your pizzas back. Now in Norway, grandiosa, the Italian word for grand, is the most prevalent pizza you'll see, period. Wildly, it outsells fresh pies per capita. Nathan lets go when it comes to frozen pizza. Norway, strangely, has the world's highest consumption of frozen pizzas. Frozen pizza is ubiquitous in Norway. 
It's just crazy how much there is. And it, it, it works out to the population eating frozen pizza on average of at least once a week for everybody. That means there's someone eating a lot more than that. Grandiosa seems to have captured their market to an extent that other convenience food brands could only dream of. I doubt that there is an American packaged food brand that has that kind of loyalty. The economics that come with frozen pizza reflect the aesthetics. The thing is, it doesn't have to be a cheaper version of its fresh self. It's the same way that pizza doesn't have to be low class. But then I also ran into lots of Italians that had a whole ethos that pizza had to be cheap. And these people would complain if the best pizzerias in their country you know, didn't have a pizza that was 10 euros. I think that's the problem with trying to be populist, that you end up being classless. There are plenty of pizzerias in Naples or Campania or elsewhere in Italy that I would give Michelin stars to if I was going to give any to those. Why can't it remain a plebeian food of the people? And I said, well, it, it can, and then it's Domino's or Little Caesars or some other chain pizzeria that's making pizza. If you want lowest possible cost, that is part of the pizza world. No doubt. It's there. It's huge. Go for it. But in order to really use the best ingredients and to have the amount of time and effort that you put into it, it takes labor, it takes labor cost, it takes having very skilled pizzolos as opposed to making it a minimum wage job. And all of those things would be improved if you would give some recognition to the very best. Labor is the source of all value. And while I see companies like Gold Belly ship America's most legendary pies nationwide, Talia de Napoli sails theirs all the way from Naples. Talia may be one letter short of Italia, but their frozen pizzas are nothing short of Neapolitan. Their co-founder and CEO, Eduard Freda, explains. Naples in his history has had a lot of you know, of evolution, um, as that a, a lot of, of conquest, of struggles, of periods of incredible growth. And the main core of Neapolitan culture is family, resilience, and the ability to adapt and resist through time. The culture of becoming a master pizza yolo, uh, which is, if you will, the chef that makes the pizza, is passed from generation to generation and is a uh, it's a very long, it's a very difficult career. Uh, there's academies, there's competition. And because it's such a, a noble art, uh, you know, pizzaiolos are, many try to become one, many are criticized. They have to work extremely long hours. It's very labor intensive. And I think the dedication that you find in a Neapolitan pizzaiolo, who really sees himself as an ambassador of his city, is, is truly unique to Naples. Let's talk about cryogenics. I mean, th this is what we're talking about when we're talking about your frozen pizza. What did you look into the science of cryogenics to, to make your pizza the first and only Neapolitan pizza to be able to freeze like that and export? 
there's two steps to our, our process, and one of them involves cryogenics. And so what we were able to create uh, between 2015 and 2017 is a process patent that we have in our facility in Naples. And that patent essentially is, has two sides to it. The first one is that we try to replicate the true process of a Neapolitan pizzeria at a larger scale. So we took the process that a Neapolitan pizzaiolo would do on, you know, on an evening at his restaurant, you know, making the dough, prepping the ingredients, and you know, a, a good pizzaiolo can do a few hundred pizzas per night, and ours have to do a couple of thousands per day. And so we broke down that process by station. Essentially, we applied Taylorism and Fordism, right, to, to the art of pizza making. Mm-hmm. So we fully bake the pizza like it was in a restaurant. When it comes out of the oven, it's in the state that we call restaurant ready. So that's step one. That part is obviously not patented. That's, you know, it's, it's open knowledge. Where the patent begins and, and the cryogenics, your question, is that when the pizza comes out of the ovens and only has seconds to go in a liquid cryogenic tunnel, and the beauty about cryogenics is that it freezes without water. And so the use of water, you know, broadly speaking, uh, meaning that you essentially you wet the ingredient or whatever you're freezing, uh, sometimes can compromise a flavor profile um, and can require you to add preservatives and additives. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very conventional freezing form. But using liquid nitrogen and cryogenics, which means using the, the, the liquid nitrogen goes in a gas form and freezes the pizza without the use of water, takes it to extremely low temperatures and therefore preserves everything that's in the pizza, the ingredients. And that's why we nicknamed our pizzas the sleeping pizzas because the pizza is, al- is allowed to go to sleep, to, to fall asleep and preserve all of its aromas and flavors. And so that kind of magic part, those few minutes in the cryogenic tunnel, it would al- it's what allows us to capture all the magic of our product. Can you tell us what temperature you're freezing these at? Or is that proprietary? It's proprietary, but it's, it's in the early low hundreds. I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not the scientist behind it, to be fair, but, but I, it's very cold. <laughs> I felt like you could have told us in Kelvin or Rankin and no one else would have known those temperature scales. <laughs> right. Other frozen pizza companies that I've discussed this with um, often re-engineer the idea of their pizza to then bake differently. So how does it come out of sleep, out of slumber? The easy answer is an oven at 425 degrees, you put it on the center rack, you don't need a pan and that's it. But, you know, even a toaster oven will work. Your barbecue, uh, you know, your outdoor grill, anything that can heat a dish or you put the pizza on it from, you know, if you prefer it softer, closer to nine minutes. If you prefer it crispier, you can leave it longer up to 11 or more. The answer is, it's very easy. And, and we were targeting convenience there. So nine to 11 minutes and, and it should be ready to go. Ready to go 130 years after it first came out of the oven. And while Talia de Napoli wants to stay true to their UNESCO intangible cultural heritage by serving classic margarita pies, they also have a Rosso and Bianco, which you can customize with your own toppings. But what's most innovative to me is how they ship. They're packed in dry ice to keep them frozen from Naples to your freezer, but their decision to take to the high seas rather than fly keeps the cost down and the earth cleaner, just by sending Neapolitan pizza here the same way it came in the first place, by boat. Being able to bring over 20,000 at the time and not using planes and just ships. And so, you know, having a supply line that takes three to four months to deliver is how we're able to control the price. And the other reason, very transparently, is that we're, we're trying to be known. We're not trying to make a big margin on this. Our goal is to grow. And so we charge what, you know, a decent amount, and we want it to be 
Exactly. And you pointed out perfectly at the intersection between a frozen pizza and a Neapolitan pizza in a restaurant. You know, we're bringing a product from the other side of the ocean and, and that inevitably still causes pollution. And so one of the things that, that we've been working on is that we're trying to make the company carbon neutral. And so right now we've created a program where we pay a tax and reinvest kind of our calculated pollution dollars into initiatives that, you know, create uh, O2. And, and we try to counter the damage that we create. And then we also try to minimize the pollution that we create by using, you know, paper instead of cardboard boxes. We use cornstarch insulators instead of styrofoam. Neapolitan pizza has been around for centuries and we don't want Neapolitan pizza to, to pollute, to be a reason to pollute. When pizza arrived in New York City around the 20th century, it was taken for granted for decades. And only now are we learning the true value of its legacy. American philosopher John Dewey was a proponent of a hands-on approach to learning, meaning that we should interact with our environment in order to adapt and learn. As an educator myself, I agree, even when it comes to pizza. Luckily for us, there's pizza school in the Lower East Side of New York City. Mark and Jenny Bello have invited 75,000 students into their storefront since 2010, adding another 25,000 more via virtual classes, making for 100,000 all-day pizza amateurs feel more like pizza pros. When I first met Mark well over a decade ago, he was just an enthusiast himself. He made me a clam pie in his Chinatown apartment using seafood from the fish shop downstairs. That turned a passion into a lifelong project. I mean, on paper, I have a background in the fine arts. What happened is I was getting my master's degree uh, in sculpture at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. This was in the mid-90s. So the pizza scene in Chicago was a lot less diverse than it is today and just, you know, across the countries. Pretty much my options were deep dish and Domino's. So I've always loved to cook and I've worked in restaurants both front of house and back of house, but I'd never made pizza. And it was really, you know, necessity, which what drove me to start doing it, becoming friends with someone who uh, was in the pizza business, who taught me how to make my first batch of dough. And then we just started dabbling with pizza making, which turned into a lot of house parties and catering gigs and fun things like that. His name is Neil Lesneski. And he is, to this day, uh, a dear friend, uh, was the best man at our wedding. And uh, and also, I was just on the phone with him because he's preparing a couple batches of dough for tomorrow's class. I started working with Mark when he opened the shop. I was kind of transitioning between things. And uh, I just started helping out. And that was right as he was opening the store. And yeah. 12, almost 12 years later. <laughs> I'm yeah. still helping out. <laughs> says, says Dr. Jenny Bello, by the way. Yeah. Da- oh, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your PhD yeah. in? Yeah. I, uh, I taught, well, I studied French literature. I mean, we are a four hour class. We are the springboard for many people who have embraced pizza making as a lifestyle. And, you know, 99.9% of them our, our home cooks, but there are the random uh, Michelin starred chefs and people who've gone on to open pizzerias. Yeah, I guess you could do a YouTube video too, but there's just something magical that happens. Well, in the space, I would say, but now through the screen, you know, where we really just, I mean, aside from the fact that we love pizza and food, we just love people. 
and connecting and doing stuff like that. So kind of opens people's minds to the possibilities. So in the beginning, when we would have classes, people who had never heard of double zero flower, I just think it's interesting because that means there's more information out there. There are better pizzas being made. You know, people are have more insight into what it means to make a pizza that's not just a pile of stuff that is not fully baked, you know? So that I just think is over a decade. Like we've seen this change and I think it's great. But you also have this amazing extension, which is your dough emergency hotline. Can you tell me what that is? (laughs) And some of the more uh, interesting and absurd questions you've received. With your alumni status comes uh, great privileges, including access to the dough emergency hotline, which is a number where people can call. And uh, if they're struggling with something, they can pick our brains. You know, of course, within reason, you know, we remind our friends uh, in Europe and Asia and the Middle East and all that, that, you know, the time difference. But yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was very interesting because busy times tend to be Thanksgiving Eve, uh, New Year's Eve. And March of 2020, (laughs) you know, the phone was really ringing off the hook. A lot of people were home. Hundreds of people were calling us in March 2020. And they're like, we're home. We want to make pizza. We can't find our booklet. The booklet that the Bellows are referring to comes complete with 3D glasses and exploding diagrams of how to construct a pizza, not dissimilar to the images found in modernist pizza. During the pandemic, Mark and Jenny sent emergency three-packs of yeast to alum that were unable to find any, giving further rise to the at-home pizza revolution. Pizza School shimmers with a classic channel lettering sign outside of the 12 by 28 foot interior, minus the three-quarter inch plywood and cheesy brick paneling on the walls, but they plan to expand. But not in the way most franchises do, rather, they're retreating from civilization. We're on the gunks. So the Shawan Gunk Mountains. We are between Walker Valley and Cragsmore, 1,100 feet up from downtown Pine Bush, New York, which is also the northeast capital of UFO paranormal activity. The next sort of stage of the evolution of our business is not to open up in every strip mall across America, but to create this, this next place, which is really going to be like a a salon for people. And, and it's, we we're nicknaming it the pizza retreat. Cause every time we say it, people just freak it's out. Like, it's like pizza school. It's, yeah. Yeah, people understand it. The second you say it. Yeah. We had a class within the first couple of years of being in operation. And it was like, we called it the United nations of pizza class because it was people, tourists and locals, people from all over the place, you know, and regardless of, you know, who they worship or worship nothing at all and who they voted for. And, you know, we had people from countries that were not really getting along and for four hours we're all together and we're sharing a common love and doing something together. And as cheesy, yes, I did that on purpose as that sounds truly there's duh, (laughs) a need for that, you know, not just telling people about how to make, excellent gluten structure, yeah, but more like excellent people that's peacefully def- coexisting structure. Yeah. That's definitely one of the things that we, I would, I mean, 
I love pizza. I go to other foods first. But the thing I love about pizza the most is really that it is something that, it, for us, it's a medium that brings people together. Je t'aime plus que la pizza. It's this altruism, teaching rather than just giving, that carries through people's lives. Grimaldi's in Las Vegas partners with the Nevada Blind Children's Foundation on pizza classes for students with visual impairities or blindness. After 25 years in special education, Walter Gloshinsky opened Smiling with Hope Pizza in 2015 in Reno, Nevada. His hope was to employ people with cognitive disabilities in the biggest little city in the world. That's a large spectrum. The population I was most excited to work with in my own business was uh, autism on the mild to high spectrum. And I wanted to work with people with cognitive impairments that kept them at the seven, eight-year-old level for the rest of their life, so to speak. Why did you choose pizza as the vehicle to employ them? Uh, because I grew up with it. You know, my mother's from, uh, from Italy. I grew up in New Jersey, just outside of Manhattan. Pizza was in my life from the day I was born. And I love pizza. And I love baking. And I was a musician before I was a teacher and I needed day work a lot. So I would get jobs working in things that do dough and baking and it paid more than digging a ditch outside in the weather, you know? Then when I went into teaching, I had already, I've been doing music and I had my own band, my own record label, booked myself all over the world. And, and I, I got excited with special needs people. So I went to college and I got a degree when I was in my 30s. And I started teaching special ed in Austin, Texas. And these kids are in high school and they can't do six plus six. Why do you want me to teach them six plus seven? So I found an old home ec room that was out of commission. And I bribed the custodian. I said, man, I'll feed you every day. You get this thing running. I did that in Santa Rosa. California, when I got to Ohio, they were building a new high school, and I convinced them to turn my classroom into a commercial kitchen. How long have you been open, and how many people do you employ right now? Well, we opened up in uh, like right around January 1st of 2016. We got here in November at 15 and started putting the place together. And we employ two people with disabilities. One has cerebral palsy and is cognitively impaired and mobility impaired. He gets around with a walker. And our other person with disabilities is autistic, and he does our dishes. He loves water. And then we have a senior citizen who ran the library downtown, the public library. She retired. She's from Jersey. She works with us when we need her. She's 74. And then we have three college-age students that helped me with topping the pizzas, taking them out to curbside, and cleanup. And my wife, who works the phones, makes the salads, does the books. I do all the prep. I make all the dough. I make every pizza. And there's our shop. Uh, the problem is pizza's fast. Fast food. And when you have 
mobility issues. You, you know, of course, there's people with disabilities that can make pizza. But the group that I work with, because of their level of cognitive impairment, they just couldn't do it. So you wouldn't necessarily have this business to run it as a pizza business. This is more than pizza. Oh, if they told me, you know, if there was some wacky war, law that came down, no the people with disabilities who work in pizzerias, I'd close today. I'd have no interest. feels like a lot of things make it worth it. And I'm reading in the background of your website on the gallery page, there's a letter written by someone, and I'm assuming it's to you. And I can make out some of it. It says, it's sometimes hard for us to learn, but you don't give up on us. Plus, you taught us never to give up on ourselves. You mean a lot to me. How much does it mean to you to read a letter like that? Oh, that's Brittany. I, I mean, I've had I've had hundreds of students, but man, you just said that, bam, she popped right into my mind. Brittany was, that means the world to me, man. I mean, that, that's why I went into special ed. I went into special ed because these people are underdogs. They have, they can't compete. Uh, when they get up to bat, it's strike three before they get out of the dugout. You know, um, you know, a lot of them don't have any hope. That's what a lot of these people are, are up against. And um, we do very little for them because they don't make anything of value. They, they make love. They make kindness. They make trust. They're like Buddhas, you know. But in capitalism, it's sink or swim. So they can't compete. Uh, why would I hire one of these people that can do three tasks at speed two when I can hire you who could do 100 tasks at speed 10? And uh, plus our people aren't trained to work with them in the private sector. And there's very little support for an employer to hire them. The support they get are not professional. They're not trained. They're not ready to work. Um, so it just gets to the point where nobody wants to hire them. It's too big. It's too much. They can't do it. So we can do it because of my background and people that care about humanity support it by buying a pizza. So it's a, it's a really a win-win situation. And that's exactly why Smiling with Hope Pizza exists as a glimmer which Gloszynski so elegantly captures in one of his Sponto Beat songs, appropriately named Smiling with Hope. Well, we're smiling with hope Cause, darling, with your love We can't go wrong, I won't say thank you mm, From our soul In another act of kindness, we head back to New York to go on tour with Scott Wiener, host of the eponymous Scott's Pizza Tours. He's guided thousands of people through NYC's streets, visiting hundreds of pizzerias, but there's also a philanthropic side to this, too. Slice Out Hunger, a nonprofit organization which runs pizza-related campaigns and events to raise funds for hunger relief organizations around the country. Wiener is helping feed America a dollar slice at a time. I cap myself at 15 slices per week, and I usually max that out or, or very often go past that. 
So if I do the math on that for the past 13 and a half years, uh, then it's a lot. Do you quantify the size of the slice? I do. This is a point of contention between me and uh, any significant other I've ever had, which is, I, a, to me, a slice is eight to 10 bites at least. And you know, if it's less than that, then it's probably a partial slice. So if you give me one of these 12-inch pies cut into eight, that's not eight slices. That's like two or three slices. So the term slice out hunger is something that we started using really the second year we were running events like this. And the first year it was, I think it was 2008 or 2009. And we had a pizza party. We meaning the Scott's Pizza Tours company had a pizza party that was sponsored by all these local pizzerias that we worked with on the tours that essentially just gave me free pizzas. And I decided rather than give out pizza to my friends who were attending essentially a party to celebrate the fact that I'd been running the pizza tour for a year. Uh, instead of giving to them for free, I decided to charge a dollar per slice and that the company Scott's pizza tours would match every dollar. And then we'd send all the money to a local hunger relief organization, which at that time it was city harvest. And uh, the second year we did that, we had more pizzerias wanted to participate. We did the same kind of thing, a dollar per slice, a donation match. And I called that party slice out hunger. And then that party continued. 2010 was the first time we used the phrase 11, 12, 13, and on and on. And we started moving venues, increasing the number of pizzerias, but still doing the same pattern. A dollar per slice. Eventually, I couldn't afford to match every dollar myself. So I started getting other companies to match every dollar. And then it still ended up the same thing. A local New York City-based hunger relief organization so we could write a big old check to after having this party lasting three or four hours with a bunch of dollar slices. You said at a point you couldn't match anymore. What was that turning point in Slice Out Hunger? I mean, once we were doing like $5,000 that we were raising, I, I just couldn't afford to do that from the pizza tour side of things, which is funny though, because then uh, after a few years, I think it was a couple of years I had to take off from that, but then we got back to it. And now at this point, every year we do it, Scott's Pizza Tours does become a sponsor at that at that same level, at that $5,000 level. $5,000 is 5,000 slices. How many slices have you served at a single Slice Out Hunger event? It takes months to organize these events because you have to wrangle the pizzerias. You have to get them to tell you how many pizzas they're planning to bring. Then you have to help them understand how to slice those pizzas. So in my personal slice eating mechanism, I feel like a full slice is a full slice. But at these events, sometimes we cut them down slightly just so we can, we want to encourage people who attend to get more slices and not just max out at three or four. We want them to like really visit as many of these pizzerias as possible. So if we're doing 60 pizzerias on average and they're donating 25 pizzas, and then if each of those is cut in eight or more slices, then we're usually doing somewhere between 10 and 15,000 slices per event. Well, and you're still doing a dollar a slice. Yes, we, <laughs> every year people say, oh, you know, if you make it $2 a slice, you'll raise double the money. <laughs> but, and I, 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 I see the math, but there's something about that dollar slice that makes the event so much more exciting. The whole engine of the organization is pizza and pizzerias and bringing people together through the joy of pizza. But 
we don't then take what we do and then just like serve pizza to people at shelters and soup kitchens, although that's some of what we do. It's really about using the engine of these events and of pizzerias around the country to raise money through creative campaigns and creative events uh, to raise money to then give to organizations that have programs that deal with food insecurity and hunger prevention. Slice Out Hunger sponsors Campaign Against Hunger, an urban farming program in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, that teaches kids where food comes from. There's CHIPS, an acronym for Community Help in Park Slope, which houses a woman's shelter for young mothers and their children. There are endless food pantries and food banks, all being fueled by pizza. Want to help out? Here's how. Can you explain how a pizzeria becomes a member? Well, we have over 400 of them all across the country, and the only thing they need to do to become a member is to pledge that they're going to donate either 30 pizzas per year to a local shelter or soup kitchen, or that they're going to use their business to raise $300 per year for a local shelter or soup kitchen. Once they've taken that pledge, they are a member. We want to make it a really low bar for entry so that new businesses starting up, that it's a no-brainer to them to join this organization, because what we offer is a way to pull everybody together and to give this unity to the nationwide pizza community that I think is lacking. That, you know, if you get, if you're a franchise owner, if you're a Domino's owner, then you have this network that's built in. But if you're an independent, then in a lot of ways you're floating on your own. So they've got the trade magazines that help with that. They've got trade organizations and we're sort of the nonprofit version of that. That's non-denominational, you know, we're, we're based in New York, but we're absolutely spread nationwide. And uh, by being a part of this community, it costs nothing. And you have the potential to boost what you do because of the network that you're part of. And you also accept home and mobile pizza makers too, right? We started doing that because we ran this slice of summer campaign with a bunch of great home pizza makers across the country. And we found that there was such great interest And I know that some of those home pizza makers are going to turn into professional pizza makers. So if we can have them part of our community before they even sign that first lease, then I think it just makes a stronger community. I think it's just around 1.3 million since we started doing any of this stuff, even before we became a 501c3 in 2015. uh, I think our big grand total was about 1.3. And we've done that in little bits here and there. It's only recently that we've been able to raise larger chunks because our partnerships have been stronger and companies who who really want to show their dedication to the community have reached out to us that they want to be a part of what we're doing. What's been the most moving part about this? I mean, I see that nearly 4,000 pizzas were donated to feed, you know, over 12 and a half thousand people at 200 plus sites. Um, Do you ever get choked up by this? I know you've seen everything in the world of pizza, but... What's the emotive part of this? It's funny you ask that because every year at Dollar Pizza Party, because of how much work it takes to put it together and how amazing it is to see the joy in the room, I always think I'm just going to like break down on the floor and like fall to my knees at how beautiful it all is. But it's become harder to do that because all I can ever think about is how we can make the events better and how we can tweak things. But uh, this year, because we've been doing what you just referenced is the pizza versus pandemic campaign, which is we raise money from people just donating on the website. And then we take in requests from hospitals and other care centers across the country 
We then fulfill those requests for pizza deliveries by pairing those pizzerias up via the Slice online ordering system. We pair them up with a local uh, pizzeria to, to do the delivery, and then we're buying the pizza from them. And when we get thank you notes from the hospitals, everybody comes over to sign this card. All I can think about is how overloaded these people are with COVID patients. And they've taken the time to print out the pictures of themselves eating the pizza, and they've all signed these cards. So you better believe I've kept every single one of those. And I post them up to our Slack channel of our volunteers to say, hey, just so you know, this doesn't just disappear into a hospital to be eaten and forgotten about. People are really appreciative of this, which is bonkers because, I mean, we're doing this to show our appreciation for people who are out there busting their rumps to, to help each other out. February 9th is National Pizza Day, which means we participate as we partner with the World Pizza Champions to do pizza deliveries to shelters and soup kitchens in all 50 states, all across the country, even some territories when we can. And uh, the way it works is pizzerias in each state tell us how many pizzas they're able to deliver and how far they're willing to go. We pair them up with a local shelter, soup kitchen, or religious center, or any place where people are hungry. And uh, we try to make some simultaneous deliveries happen. So this year, we're looking at having somewhere around three or 400 simultaneous pizza deliveries happening on National Pizza Day. When did you first realize that a slice of pizza was a vehicle for change? Surprisingly enough, it wasn't through Slice at Hunger that I realized that pizza was this, uh, this way to affect change. It was actually through the pizza tours. Because with Slice at Hunger, that's kind of obvious. We know what we're doing. We're raising money for people who are hungry. It's not that complicated. But on the tour, I realized years in that the things that I would be saying on a tour, it's not just about how old is that pizzeria or what's the fuel source they're burning or what's the fermentation cycle of the dough. All that stuff is surface. But it's really the explaining the concept that pizza as a constantly adapting food is this like symbol of perfect humanity uh, where all cultures coming together to create new things that are then accepted and then translated by all other cultures. I think it's, it's that, that process, that communication, like that discussion that happens on a pizza tour where people don't realize, they think at first that we're talking about pizza, a food that you eat and that you think of as junk food. But I really think it resonates deeper. And I get emails from people who understand what I'm going for, which is you took pizza for granted and now you're looking at it in a deeper way. And maybe you can apply that same concept to other things, places, people, anything you interact with. Not to be outdone by New York, Chicago has its own crusader. John Carruthers is a communications manager for Revolution Brewing by day. And at night, he makes and sells pizza out of an alley to raise money for community organizations working to make Chicago a better place to live. He calls it Crust Fun Pizza, and through it, he preaches the gospel of tavern-style pies and their inherent goodness. Yeah, so I grew up in the um, suburbs of Chicago, a place called McHenry County, which is kind of where Chicago land meets Wisconsin. Growing up, we had, uh, you know, deep dish and everything occasionally like you do, but we grew up on square cut. You know, we called, I mean, we called it pizza, um, you know, now known as like tavern cut pizza. That was 
what all our favorite local places had. And, you know, it didn't occur to me until I was elsewhere that this wasn't the default many other places. What were your local places called? So there's Nick's Pizza and Pub. Um, and that was a place that like, not only we went to all the time, but my dad worked for the the city and he helped their owner with various, I don't know, I think it was like permitting and um, civil engineering issues. So there was always that little connection there. We used to, I used to go there every single Friday in high school. And I mean like every single Friday for like pizza before bowling, before a movie. It was very Midwestern energy there. And what are your local pizza joints now? Michael's Pizza on Sheridan, which does not get any of the write-ups. So if you visit, I encourage you to look it up. Uh, and also there's Marie's Pizza on Lawrence Avenue. That is like a place that hasn't seemingly changed since post-World War II. Uh, they serve the same pizza in the same ovens, a large as 14 inches. And when they are open inside, the decoration is just straight out of GI Bill loans. I mean, it's crazy. So what are the tenants of a good tavern pie? It gets the edges just a little more charred. It gets a little more crisp in the crust. It renders down whatever you're topping it with, you know, pork sausage, pepperoni. Um, That's the most important thing. And it's kind of this running game locally where like you ask for a well done or you ask for it in, you know, I'm putting quotes around this, the old oven. You know, aside from that, uh, really thin dough that still has flavor to it. And a really good tomato sauce, I think, makes these places live or die. And there are kind of two schools on that. Like some people like it, you know, herbaceous and bright. And some people like it super sweet. A lot of the South side places like Aurelio's um, will have like incredibly sweet sauce. And some people, especially people who grew up on it, just totally key into that flavor. As the pandemic loomed, Carruthers turned his hometown pie into a local hero, using it as a way to reconnect and in turn raise funds and awareness for a community that was in need. So it was kind of a two-stage thing. Um, You know, last March uh, in April, I was like climbing the walls going insane. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't see in. We couldn't do anything. And like, I'm not only just a very kind of social person, I have a very social job. My wife and I kind of decided to do something that we'd been meaning to do forever, but you know, like plans kept getting in the way. And that was like do a pizza and a movie night every week with the kids. We did a few different kind of things. We did some pan pizza, some Detroit pizza, but pretty early on, we figured out that like, the kids loved and I loved and she loved most like the the tavern style pizza. So we started making that every single week. Um, we got through the entire Pixar catalog, um, made a real dent in Star Wars. But uh, eventually that summer came, um, you know, and the protests and everything terrible that was happening. Um, and, you know, it's easy to feel kind of helpless at that, especially when you can't go anywhere and you don't have any particular skills as an organizer as a community person. And I thought, well, if the only thing I can do is make pizza, like let's make pizza and we'll make sure that these people who are very good at rallying our our different communities here in Chicago get the money that they deserve to keep doing that work. So it was uh, that August. um, I put up a menu on Instagram. I had no idea if anyone wanted it. Uh, I said, hey, you know, I'm just a dude. I got two ovens, so I can't make a lot of these. But if you want to if you want to give a donation to these places and show me the receipt, I'll cook you a pizza and you can pick it up in the alley. So that's how that started. Has pizza been the right vehicle for this? I mean, it's such a democratized food. Are there parallels in, in what pizza is and the way you help people? I think people just really love, love, love pizza. So they are willing to, it's also big enough, you know, back to your sharing size thing where people will pay kind of a lot for it if they want to demonstrate their support of an organization. And then they're also like, oh man, I finally got that Instagram pizza I've been trying for. Cause these, these do sell out really fast. Like I said, like 
home ovens and all, but uh, it's a great vehicle because I don't, I'm thinking, and I can't remember anyone telling me they don't like pizza since I started this. Like I've made barbecue, I've made spam things, I've sold food over my adult life, but pizza is the only one where everybody to a person likes it. Now let's talk about the money you raised. Um, if you can give me some numbers as well as the cookbook that you made. We took crust fun pizza into a brick and mortar for the first time, just this previous Monday at the Kedzie Inn. Um, and we raised over $1,100 for, like I said, the Friendship Center. Um, but that night put us over uh, $10,000 cumulatively um, since Crust Fund Pizza started. So that's where we are there. For the cookbook, that the, the church cookbook, for lack of a better term, that we created with all these different Chicago uh, writers and cooks and pizza people, um, we... Did a first printing where I kind of raised some of the money myself and we sold out of that. And then we turned to Kickstarter and got an amazing response. Um, the first printing of that book uh, that we paid for on our own has already raised just north of $9,300 um, for these different organizations. And I just finished fulfilling the Kickstarter things and there should be another nine or 10,000 in there. So we're, we're talking close to $20,000 with the church cookbook of pizza and $10,000 um, with just pizza alone. It's been a very heartening, uh, you know, view into the municipal support of pizza and good causes. What's the future for Crust Fun Pizza? I kind of like doing this, but, uh, you know, once we hit a big number, I'm like, why not more? I think we're going to do more pop-ups. We sold out all of our pizzas. We sold out pre-orders in two minutes and then walk-in pies, I think we'll probably do another cookbook because people seem to really respond to the fact that the first church cookbook in 15 years or something came out. Um, and that's kind of it. Like this is, I told people I am here for the long haul. And if you can't get a pizza, just wait because other people will get sick of my BS and then you'll be able to get it. So <laughs> until I exhaust people, I'm just going to keep making pizza out of here and then doing other things on the side just to make sure that we raise enough money for the places we really like. Luckily, we just had to crust the process. If you too trust the crust fund process, please follow at Nachos and Lager to further support the cause. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni. There's nothing easier than ordering a pizza for delivery. It's the waiting around that's hard. But with the new Unikaru 16, making your own pizza is even faster than delivery. It takes only 15 minutes to fire up your oven to proper temp, and then in 60 seconds, your pie is done. 16 minutes, oven door to table. Even the bike delivery guy from a few blocks over can't have a piping hot pizza to your door that quick. Sometimes I want a wood smoked margarita, and other times I'm looking for a New York slice. With the Karu 16's multi-fuel option, you not only get that instant gratification of a great Neapolitan pie, but you can choose how you want to cook it too, with wood, charcoal, or gas. Now, get off your apps, close your computer, and get out your uni. It's time for pizza. Learn more at uni.com backslash modernistpodcast. That's O-O-N-I dot com backslash modernistpodcast. Bringing people together over pizza, it's not just about social conscience. 
It's also about love. I believe that every series has to have one of those sappy love stories, you know, where two people meet and mix against all odds to make great pizza. I found no better pairing than that of Anzalone Pizza, a food truck in Boise, Idaho, by way of Thailand. Yeah, Thailand. Tyler became Kick's pen pal. Then they became husband and wife. Then they bought a pizza truck that serves Thai-inspired pies, which serves a greater purpose, to bring us all closer together by broadening our minds. So English is not my first language, and I'm from Thailand. He tried to learn Thai, and I tried to learn English, and we matched. So we got to chat and then talk for a while. Yeah, it was May 31st. May 31st. Or 30th? The very end of May. Yeah, 2018. We met in person. So Tyler, do you remember the first pizza that you made her? Yeah, actually, I made her a pizza in Thailand, um, and we didn't have any pizza oven or anything. We had to make it on the stovetop with a like a skillet. Yeah. But uh, I think we made we made like a Penang red red curry yeah. pizza, we like made a Thai a, dish pizza. Yes, we made a curry pizza, and then it was so good. It turns out good that it's now our specialty in our menu. So Boise's. I don't know if they are this year, but the last two, maybe even three years, they've been the largest growing uh, city, I think, in America, or maybe the the most desired city to move to or town to move to. Yeah. Uh, so it's been growing a lot. It was a small town when I moved here. Majority of the people here are just Caucasian, uh, but there's a lot of refugees here. And it's kind of, if you've ever been over to the West West Coast or Northwest, it's kind of like Seattle or Portland. It kind of follows in those um, cultural footsteps, but yeah, it's a few years behind those guys. We're not quite there yet, but it's, it's growing. People are pretty open-minded here and there's a lot of food trucks popping up. I've never made pizza before, but I, I do cook a lot back in my hometown. I started cooking very young because I had to cook for my parents when they were gone to the farm. And when they come back, I cook food, make sure it's ready for them. So I started cooking like nine, 10, but it was all like Thai food and traditional food, local. Yeah, so you had this Penang pizza experience in Thailand. When did you realize that this blending of cultures was a business? And what were some of the other ideas you started having? So Kik didn't want to put a Thai pizza on the menu. I mean, I think she was okay with it, but I don't think she saw it as anything that would ever work out. Just because in her mind... I don't know how to re-equate it. Maybe it's like a mac and cheese burrito or something. You're like, oh, that's not going to work. No one, no one's going to like that. But in her mind, yeah, that curry doesn't belong on pizza. Um, but then she saw how many people liked the idea, first of all, and then they actually liked the flavor. And she's like, wow, okay, maybe, maybe Thai food or fusion food on, on pizza is going to work out, you know? So um, lots of Thai curries or Thai food is made with coconut milk. And that's always good with with, um, the bread because it's a curry and uh, it's very cheesy, creamy, something like that. But we also, we experiment with crying tiger pizza. It's like spicy beef salad on pizza. And that was different, but we found that very good. I mean, the dish is good itself. And then when when it's on pizza, it just like, it goes so well together. Yeah, I was trying to do like full Thai dishes. It was just the the dough and 
we keep we keep the dough and the cheese and everything but the for the i'm trying my best to to put like the real thai food on on the pizza i'm trying my best not to like mess with the ingredients in the thai food so much just want it to be like real thai food still even it's on pizza i think it's so interesting because i i know there are tomatoes in thai cuisine but you rarely see cheese and if anything um i had been reading about some kind of insect like a a water bug that tastes kind of like gorgonzola. And that was the only reference I saw to cheese and Thai cuisine. You already said that coconut milk is similar to the mouthfeel maybe of cheese, but how was it experiencing mozzarella on the pizza for the first time? Oh, it was pretty good, but um, it didn't go very well with the lob because lob is like, it's bouncing everywhere. It's, it's sour, it's salty, spicy. So it has the specific taste that doesn't go well with cheese it's not like smooth but curry goes really well with cheese sometimes like masaman curry but um when i do panang curry i try to put light cheese on there because i don't want it to take away the the taste from the coconut milk because it's already very creamy itself uh thai pizzas or fusion pizzas you've had but the ones that we've tried here um are peanut sauce chicken with with uh, carrots and maybe like celery on top um, which is pretty popular. It seems to be a, a common theme is the peanut sauce uh, with chicken, but that's not really like a popular dish in Thailand. You don't really find peanut sauce chicken all over the place, but that seems to be the go-to when people think of Thai pizza. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I've had a Thai pizza. It's uh, peanut sauce with uh, chicken and carrots. And you're like, mm, yeah, that's definitely the American version of a Thai pizza. But I think... Uh, when we when we did this Penang, I was really hoping that people not only liked it, but caught on and thought that, wow, this is actually Thai food. Yeah, I was trying to do like full Thai dishes. It was just the the dough and we keep we keep the dough and the cheese and everything. But the, for the I'm trying my best to to put like the real Thai food on on the pizza. I'm trying my best not to like mess with the ingredients in the Thai food so much. Just want it to be like real Thai food still, even it's on pizza. That's all it takes sometimes. Two things going well together. Anzalones are more than a coupling. They're singular. And if you're ever in the Boise area, I hope you stop by to see them. If not, Kick's Thai cooking is on display on YouTube as well, where she boasts of following over 117,000 subscribers. Go, watch, and comment on which Thai dishes she and Tyler should try on pizza next. I think of Saran Aeon's ambitions in the same way. He's been trying to find synergy within his family and pizza for all his life. Both his parents are from Turkey, his mother is ethnically Turkish while his father is Kurdish. They owned and operated Boston Pizza in Astoria, Queens, but sadly closed during the pandemic, but was known for making New England-style Greek pies. Ion's world felt much bigger than that, and that's why he's now trying to take pizza to the next level. They were in the restaurant industry since before I was born. So we had a bunch of kind of health food, salad, fresh juice restaurants called Salad Bowl. So we had a couple of locations throughout New York City. So we had those kind of like three 80s and early 90s. Um, you know, we kind of lost those and we transitioned to, uh, the pizzeria, you know, I was like 10 years old when they named it. I wish they named it something else, but 
Uh, I, I didn't realize until, you know, well into my adult life that there actually does have some kind of meaning behind the name. So we had a business partner who was from Boston who brought his style of pizza over. And so this was the style of pizza that I grew up with, like despite being a New Yorker, uh, is New England Greek style pizza, right? So it's a pan pizza that's generally like a low hydration dough, usually a blend of low moisture mozzarella and white cheddar. So it's kind of fluffy. It, it's a lot thicker than a New York slice, not as well known as let's say Detroit or let's say like a tavern style from Chicago, like other regional styles. But, you know, a fair, I, I think a fair amount of people know it. Like uh, Kenji Lopez wrote an article about it a couple years back. So it's been kind of like a side project of mine of piecing together what really makes a New England Greek style pizza. What are the elements to it? It hasn't been really romanticized. It's as let's say New York style or Neapolitan, you know, it's, it's got its fans and I think when it's good, it's good, but you know, it's, it's been tricky just finding like what exactly are key elements to it, but this is what I've pieced together so far. I would say I was trying to learn as much as I could about Greek style, but same time as was also learning about New York style right now on like a Chicago cracker thin kick, but I'm also into kind of a ceramic Lovely's 50-50 style whole grain farm to table pizza as well. So I take a very large view, I would say big picture view of pizza. My goal, I would say, is trying to get that view as large as I can and see view, view the industry as a as from a big of a scope as possible. But where do you start? Do you start in your family's pizzeria? Do you have to be tactile and be touching dough? Can you read? Do you have to go out and eat? What senses do you use to kind of feed your mind? So for me, I would say just like for my own journey, let's say I started at my family's pizzeria, right? It was out of necessity that I had to be a part of that. So we were in Astoria for about, let's say at that point, 15 plus years and the neighborhood like really just gentrified and changed and our lease was up we had to relocate so i kind of got involved uh luckily we were able to relocate across the street from our old location i at that point was someone who you know went to school had undergraduate graduate degrees um you know i was on a kind of a professional track right but i saw an, an opportunity to, to learn something that a lot of people might not have a chance to, to do so, right? So I would say my parents, my family's pizzeria was kind of the backdrop and foundation for my learning. Uh, but from there, like really, I went to as many pizzerias as I could, um, connected with as many pizza people as I could. You know, I went to like Pizza Expo in Atlantic City, Las Vegas, and just anywhere I traveled, right? I would just make it a point to like, meet and connect the pizza makers and just talk to them and just like, you know, learn from them and see what they were like just as people. Now, are you trying to reorganize pizza in your mind um, for yourself or for the masses? You know, like I mentioned, my family was in the restaurant industry for so many years, right? And my grandfather had left his village in like Eastern Turkey. And then his son, my late uncle Orhan, he left a big city in Turkey to come to the U.S., 
to study, right? And he got his doctor and everything. And then he opened these restaurants, right? So there's like this this long legacy, right? That I, I kind of guess didn't want to kind of die out with my family's shop closing. So, and I didn't really have much of an interest of opening a restaurant, but I did want to preserve some kind of, some kind of legacy here, you know? Um, I didn't want to just die out with with our, our pizzeria closing. So I think what I'm doing here is continuing some kind of legacy, right? By becoming a pizzamaker, becoming a person who just has like all this knowledge and experience. And I can point to be like, you know, I'm the person who, whose family had that pizzeria. And like, this is where I, where I am now. Why not PETA? Why not something more <laughs> directly Turkish? I mean, what did you eat at home? Did you just eat pizza that was brought home from the restaurant? You know, sometimes, I mean, you know, we had, it, it froze well, so we'd have it in the freezer. But, um, you know, like I said, we did try the Turkish restaurant route and <laughs> it didn't really work out. Not that we sold pita or anything like that, but um, my mom did make, you know, Turkish food. We had uh, eggplant and meze, all kinds of different soups, you name it. Um, I am interested in, you know, Pide and Lahmacun and other like Middle Eastern flatbreads, but I think I'm interested in pizza styles and bread styles as a whole. And to me, it's like part of a larger picture, right? Like just studying the origins of wheat, for example, right? It's from the Fertile Crescent, and then from there, it kind of moved out. So to me, it's it's, it's part of a one piece of a larger picture, right? Like I Pide or Lahmacun wouldn't be like one single thing I would focus on it would be part of a bigger picture thing. Let's talk about Lamujan because sure. I hear it described as Turkish pita. So yeah, yeah. Or I hear it described as Turkish pizza. So often why is it, or is it not pizza? I mean, any, anyone who knows me, I think will know that I, I find that like styles and trying to like categorize things like it can, it's, it's all semantics I feel and like it can overly like words overly complicate I can find you know like I try to view a thing for what it is um you know it it really depends on what you're going by the definition of pizza um I'm gonna lean more towards that functionally it is pizza um but maybe historically it's not if that makes sense now, I saw recently in an event you made an a la Norma Turca pizza. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> tell me about the inspiration behind that. Sure. So uh, last summer, there was a event uh, put together by Scott Weiner of Scott's Pizza Tours and Slice Out of Hunger. So we had a different pizza maker every week. Uh, it was like a home pizza yellow event. Uh, this was at Russo's in Park Slope in Brooklyn. So you had to make a margarita and then a specialty pie, right? So I was just kind of looking for inspiration. And I, I just recently learned about like a a la Norma pizza. Um, I hadn't had one previously, but I learned about it. And you know, it has eggplant on it and um, kind of some, kind of some kind of specialty cheese on it. So, you know, just being from a family from, that's from Turkey and as someone who grew up eating eggplant, it wasn't much of a stretch, right? I took kind of the garlic yogurt sauce that my mom would use for eggplant dishes growing up. I'd bake the eggplant with the, the pizza, and then post-bake, I would add 
the garlic yogurt sauce and added chili flakes and garlic oil, which I think really kind of pops on the white yogurt. So that I, I would say, you know, I drew from my my culture, but also just my experiences thus far as a pizza maker to come up with that. What's next level pizza? So next level pizza is my, I would say new pizza brand, right? So I've mainly been operating just under my name for, I would say the longest time. Um, after my family retired, you know, I had to kind of think of like, well, well what's next, right? It's kind of a nostalgia, video game kind of themed pizza brand. You know, I, I grew up with gaming. I would say before pizza, like video games were kind of like my my passion and my hobby. So this kind of is like an homage to my younger self. And it puts that together with my current passion of pizza and bread making. And what's your Konami code pizza? <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet, but you know, I've, you're not the first to ask me that. So... I think you have to stretch your dough <laughs> up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. That, that it's in the works, you know. I um, it it yeah. So my brand, it's very. I'm kind of figuring out as I go right now. Um, it's the brand I want to work with when I'm doing events or private parties, things like that. But I'd like to do like merch. I've been doing parody logos recently, so I, I made one this week that people really liked. It's I took like the Nintendo logo, you know, like the oval shaped original Nintendo logo and I took the same font and I fixed it around and it's instead of Nintendo, it just says Neapolitan and it like really resonated with people and people are like, Oh, I want that on a shirt. That's so cool. Like, Oh, this is like, it really speaks to me. So, you know, just like fun little projects like that, you know, opening a restaurant is not my goal here. I get asked this a lot, but I find that not having a restaurant actually works to my advantage. Right. I have the flexibility to learn more, experiment more, um, connect with more people in the industry. So trying to figure out how to operate within the pizza world without having a restaurant, but still having some kind of pizza business. Follow at Next Level Pizza on Instagram to see what's yet to be written in Ion's Pizza Quest. I've learned a lot of my pizza know-how through literature. Of course, there's Modernist Pizza, the book, amongst a plethora of other titles, but is the pizza-themed children's lit? That surprised me the most. My toddler loves Secret Pizza Party, Pete's Pizza Party, and more, but his, and my favorite book lately, has been Every Night is Pizza Night by Kenji Lopez-Alt, author of the Food Lab Cookbook, a New York Times columnist and chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, which is also home to an extensive Pizza Lab archive. It follows the data-driven adventures of a young girl named Pipo, whose, as you could guess, favorite food is pizza, but always ask the ever-omnipresent, why? Oh, my very first post about pizza there was probably a series of reviews, because we used to review a lot of uh, pizza places in, in, um, at Serious Seats. There was an old site called Slice that was started by Adam Kuban, who uh, now works for a different company. But he started this old blog called Slice that was all about pizza that got acquired by Serious Eats um, actually before I started working at Serious Eats. And so we had a regular pizza review column where we went around New York and ate pizza. Uh, and then I started a column on Serious Eats called the Pizza Lab which was a once a month column that sort of alternated with the Burger Lab and the Food Lab. 
So there's a dough recipe in the back of um, Every Night is Pizza Night. It's essentially an even easier version of the um, no-need, no-stretch pan pizza dough that I have on Serious Eats, which started out, you know, that, that recipe started out as like a, um, as a variation of no-need bread, you know, where uh, you, you essentially just mix together flour, water, yeast, uh, and salt and let it sit. You, you let it sit basically at room temperature for a day. Um, and through that process, it essentially kneads itself um, and it forms gluten and it stretches out and it becomes like, you know, decent bread. And you can do the same thing with pizza dough. And that's essentially what this one is. Um, and so instead of, you know, the idea was like, all right, what are the parts of, of making pizza that people have problems with? Right. And part of it is making the dough. It takes a lot of practice and you have to do it over and over and over and over. So the idea with this recipe is like, all right, well, you don't have to knead it. You just mix the ingredients together. You throw them in a bowl. Um, and in fact, you don't even have to stretch it. It's a, you know, it's, it's a pan pizza style. So it's got a, a, a thicker crust sort of, you know, the, the inspiration was what I remember as pizza parties at, at a pizza hut growing up, which is a sort of thicker pan pizza, more sort of like focaccia. Um, but the dough, you don't even have to stretch it because it's very high hydration. So there's a lot of water in the dough. And so basically, like you plop it into a uh, an olive oil coated cast iron pan or pie plate, you know, some kind of round pan. And then you just let it sit there for an hour or two. And over that time, it essentially pools out and spreads into the pan. And so all you have to do is like very gently stretch it out with your fingertips till it comes to the edges of the pan. But very, very minimal stretching involved. Uh, and, you know, and because it's such a sort of hefty thicker crust um it also it also can take a lot of sauce and a lot of cheese and a lot of toppings it's like you know you want you want a kid to be able to just like pick up a handful of cheese toss it on there put on whatever toppings they want and have a crust that's going to stand up to that so the pizza recipe in the book is sort of designed to be able to take on as many toppings uh, and as much cheese as you want without um sort of collapsing under its own weight it's more like um you know like a detroit pizza where the cheese goes all the way to the edge and it kind of gets under the edge of the pan and it browns and it turns really dark and it turns into this like Frico, like really savory, crispy cheese crust. Um, so you can do that on this pizza and it comes out delicious and you don't really have to worry about telling the kids, all right, now be careful. Don't let the cheese go over the edge of the pizza and you know, just throw it wherever you want. And it comes out great. I also love that Peepo in a talk bubble reinforces what you said before. And before you start, remember, even imperfect pizza is still pizza and pizza is always delicious. Now, yeah. <laughs> Is who is Peepo? Is Peepo fiction or nonfiction? She's v vaguely fiction. Um, you know, I, I wrote this book when my first daughter was born, um, and so by the time I think the book came out, my daughter was maybe two years old. So you know, obviously, if you if you look at like the opening pages of the book, it's it's very much based on my family. Um, the you know the parents are me and my wife, and um, and the daughter is. Um, our daughter, but you know, we, we kind of projected her age forward a little bit and took a lot of liberties. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a girl who's interested in science, who has lots of questions and who doesn't take just because for an answer and wants to know why things are the way they are, um, which is very much her personality and was even back then, you know, when she, as soon as she could start talking, her questions were always why, 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 you know, and that why is sort of the foundation of science, you know, and trying to answer why. So the book has that um, sort of approach to food and understanding um, how food works and how culture works and how different people have different opinions on things and, and different feelings and how, you know, that, how all that is okay. It's okay to have different ideas of what best is, for example, is you know, part of the message of the book. Now, did you go through all the pizza tests that are illustrated? <laughs> Test number four, waffle iron. <laughs> 
test number 91 pizza upside down, which is, I think, my son's favorite. And he is two right now and is starting to ask why about everything, mm-hmm. but never questions pizza. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure at some point, you know, definitely I've done pizza in a waffle iron. That was something we did at Serious Eats where, you know, there was a phase where we stuck everything in a waffle iron. Um, the trick to pizza in a waffle iron is you want to fold it in half first so that both sides are crust or, or you can stick two slices together with the, with the, you know, with the tops facing in. So it's kind of, come, kind of comes out like a sandwich. Um, pizza in a waffle iron is delicious. You know, there, there's two pizzas upside down. One of them is she's eating it from the crust first. So that's sort of like the pizza slices upside down. That's actually the way my wife eats pizza. Um, and, the, you know, the first time I saw her do that, um, I can't remember. I think we were at a, uh, oh, it was somewhere, it was somewhere in Manhattan um, when we, when we had, uh, we went out and got a slice of pizza and she started eating it backwards. And I was like, what are you doing? But her theory is that the, uh, the center of um, any food, you know, whether it's a sandwich or a slice of pizza or a hamburger, the center is the best part. And so she saves that for last. So she doesn't, she eats, eats the tip of the slice last. Um, and then of course there's the, you know, the, the, in the book, um, she's also eating pizza upside down where she's hanging from her, hanging from her knees on the monkey bars and eating a slice of pizza upside down. I don't know if I've ever done that one, but I do remember an episode of, um, I think that was inspired by a, an episode of Mr. Wizard's World, um, the old Nickelodeon show uh, with, with Don Herbert, Mr. Wizard, where he had a kid uh, stand on their head and eat to talk about how, you know, our the muscles in our esophagus can push food um, and don't actually rely on, on gravity. Whereas we, we, re- we do rely on gravity to pee, which is why, which is why you can't stand on your head forever. <laughs> the lesson in the book is that um, we all come from different backgrounds. We, we have different ideas of what best are. We can define best in different ways. Um, and so... Through the book, you know, people, the girl, um, at the beginning of the book, she thinks that pizza is the best food in the world and, you know, therefore she won't ever eat anything else. And throughout the book, she tries foods from other cultures, other people, other families, um, and talks to them about what makes this particular food best for them. Um, and I think through that, she gains an understanding that you can look at food through different lenses and um, and different um, cultural backgrounds and um, and different personalities and gain an appreciation for different different foods that way. And so she she does end up tasting various other other dishes, um, bibimbap, tagine, uh, red beans and rice, dumplings. But at the end, um, she does come around and and realizes that it's okay for many different things to be the best all at the same time. Test number 99 is a pizza party in which Pipo makes pizza mm-hmm. for all those people you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. What is the best pizza in your mind? What is that recipe? <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I think the best pizza is the one that's in front of you and the one that you're, um, that, you're that you're sharing with, uh, with your friends and family. You know, pizza, I think one of the things that makes one of the things that makes pizza great is that it's like literally built for sharing, right? You yeah, sure you can get an individual pizza and maybe if you're in if you're in in Naples you're going to eat eat your own individual pizza with a fork and a knife or whatever, but pizza as most people um, in the world these days I think conceive of it is a is a large thing that's cut into pieces for us to share, right? You don't go out and get a pizza by yourself. You get it you can maybe get a slice by yourself, but then you're sharing it with everybody else at the shop. You bring a pie home, you sit down at a table with a family, you sit in front of the TV and watch a game or a movie. You know, you sit around the table and, and, and talk. And, you know, and, and a lot of my favorite memories growing up were built around going out for pizza, like with my dad and my sister or my, um, you know, stopping for pizza on the way home from skiing or or getting a slice of pizza with friends after school. Um, and so f- for me, the idea of pizza and sharing 
a meal, like kind of go hand in hand. And it, and, and it really is like one of those ideal foods that's built for, for sharing um, and, um, you know, enjoying with, with other people. Does your daughter believe pizza is the best? If you ask her right now what her favorite food is, um, she would, off the top of her head, she would probably say fish heads and um, frozen peas. Uh, and then if you prompt her and say, but what about pizza? She would say, oh yeah, pizza, of course. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, pizza is, all, is, is one of those foods that like I would never turn down. Um, it's certainly the only food I could think of that I could eat like literally every day and not get sick of it. Um, um, and my, you know, my daughter would not turn down a pizza at any point either. I know it's one giant leap to go from kids' books to outer space, but my first knowledge of a world outside of our own was through the Muppet Show's Pigs in Space skit. In 2001, a Russian cosmonaut received Pizza Hut on board the ISS, becoming the first astronaut to eat a slice in space. Brenton Tsai, an ex-SpaceX employee, is now using robotics to bring pizza to new horizons. Pizza in space. My parents are, are, are actually immigrants from Taiwan. Uh, so growing up in Los Angeles, we ate mostly Chinese food, but I distinctly remember pizza and In-N-Out uh, being kind of the only American foods my parents allowed us to have in the house. And, and so pizza has always been one of my favorite foods. Were there any local pizza joints around there? Yeah, funny enough, uh, there was a place that we would frequent uh, called World's Best Pizza. So out of graduate school, um, I started a company in Silicon Valley called Motive Power Systems, and that was started with a, a college friend of mine. And we were building electric vehicles, but in not in sort of the non-exotic spaces. We were building electric school buses, garbage trucks, and, and the idea was to tackle you know heavy vehicles. I did that for a few years and then was uh, an early hire at a company that's now called Lucid Motors. But at the time, they were building electric trucks and buses in China. And so I had a lot of fun in the electric vehicle world, building batteries. The opportunity to work at SpaceX came up and I couldn't really turn that down. And so I ended up moving back to Los Angeles where I was working at SpaceX for five years. I designed the battery system for the Dragon spaceship, as well as the Starlink uh, satellite internet services. If you don't know SpaceX, it's run by this guy named Elon Musk. And his big picture goal is to get to Mars and create a multi-planetary way of existence, changing how humans behave in the solar system. I, I would say that, you know, my background in battery engineering is 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 not as relevant <laughs> to pizza, but but my background in vehicle technology it definitely applies to the automated pizza truck that, that that we're designing. We needed everything to fit into a very very compact space, but it also allows us to have significant control over the costs of the equipment, and and that the combination of you know small space plus low cost allows us to operate our business in in a slightly more advantageous way than maybe other pizzerias. How much space are we talking about? Um, so we're talking about a small, maybe it's about the size of a, food, a standard food truck, a little bit taller. Why a little taller? Uh, we we uh, sized our first generation vehicle to hold 444 pizzas. And as we operate our system, we will sort of refine that number and, and, and shrink the vehicle. 
So we prepare all of our dough and let it sit for about 48 hours before we load it into the vehicle. So in the vehicle, into the vehicle goes a complement of, you know, 444 dough balls, but also the necessary ingredients to make that, uh, you know, cheese, pepperoni, and, and the assorted toppings that we offer. We offer a classic list of pizzas. So we've got... Um, Cheese, pepperoni, sausage, bacon, uh, bell peppers, and this this is all sort of to be determined because we're not we haven't launched yet. But our plan is to offer the top ten most popular toppings. Now, is your interest in pizza, or is it in the robotics around this? Um, where's the synergy there? Yeah, I would say that I um, to 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 connect this back to like why I'm building this company. Uh, in, in Taiwanese culture and in Chinese culture, when you, when you greet someone in the street, it's, it's very much, you don't say, how are you? Oh, Hey, how are you? You, you ask, have you eaten yet? And that's how we decide how well you're doing. Um, uh, the, the food is, is a central part of kind of my life. And so I'm really building this company to enable, you know, access to, to affordable fresh foods. The robotics is only a, a part of it. It's the int- it, it, it enables the business to, to operate in, in a very, very efficient way. I mean, I, I can glean the answer from the name, but why did you name it Stellar Pizza? <laughs> I think uh, um, we looked at a number of names uh, before we landed on Stellar, and it, it just made so much sense given uh, my, my co-founders and, and a large portion of our, our uh, existing engineering team did come from SpaceX. And, and, and then the, the first thought that you think when you hear Stellar is actually not space, but you think it's delicious or amazing, right? And so it just, it was the perfect name. Yeah, so uh, we started early days, you know, scouring the internet uh, uh, before we hired a chef, uh, the, the three co-founders and I. Uh, but then uh, Chef Ted Sisma, which who actually worked for SpaceX uh, for ten year, almost 10 years, ended up owning the the pizza recipe development process. And we brought on uh, Noel Broner, who, who's a famous pizza, pizza consultant, to help refine our dough recipe. Why did you choose him? Um, he was the one, he was the guy everyone pointed us to. We talked to our cheese vendor, we talked to our pepperoni vendor, you know, everyone just said, you got to work with Noel. And, and he happened to be in Los, the Los Angeles area. So it worked out really nicely. Yeah, the, the goal is to actually have this truck be roaming around and following people wherever they are, not not stopping them. But um, the goal is to have this be a part of their lives in in, in however they consume pizza. Uh, because it's in a mobile form factor, we'll be able to you know be at an office park at lunch and then go into neighborhoods at dinner and then maybe even roam around kind of uh, the, the the bar scene at two a.m. when all the bars close. So so it's 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 about cooking and preparing fresh foods as close to the point of consumption as possible. And that, that uh, I believe is just a better experience. I'm, I'm sure you've had a hot pizza come out of an oven and it's, it's, it's just delicious. How large of a fleet do you see this being in say 10 years? In 10 years, uh, we want it to be, you know, a fleet of about a thousand vehicles roaming around the United States serving pizza. And maybe, just maybe, we'll see a pizza rover on Mars. It's been quite a season one, starting in the Gilded Age to the 2020s, but what's the hindsight here? 
that pizza is pliable, but maybe not as impressionable as we think. There's thought and consideration put into each pie, from the flour to the dough, crust, cheese, and toppings, oven and beyond. But as comedic genius Bill Murray once said, every pizza is a personal pizza if you try hard and believe in yourself. I like to think that every pizza is personal, especially if you believe in yourself. Thank you to our sponsors, Uni and Miyoko's Creamery, and all of our sponsors across the season. To our guests, Edward Freda, Jenny and Mark Bello, Walter Glozinski, Scott Wiener, John Carruthers, Tyler and Kick Anzalone, Serhan Aon, Kenji Lopez-Alt, Benson Sai. To Jack Inslee, our engineer, flip tight timelines throughout many time zones. Music by Kara Cleveland Sings for their audio excellence always. Our logo and episode art by Jenny Acosta, and for the awesome anthropomorphic pizza character, Matt Bogart, for assembling our audiograms, which you'll be hearing on social media soon. And of course, Nathan Marivold and Francisco Magoya of Modernist Cuisine for writing Modernist Pizza in the first place. While we're scouting for season two, please hit us up on social media and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Spread the word. It's your support that will allow us to bring you more pizza stories, hopefully soon. This episode of the Modernist Pizza Podcast is brought to you by Miyoko's Creamery, revolutionizing pizza with our world-changing, new, liquid vegan pizza mozzarella. Loved by chefs and foodies, Miyoko's liquid vegan pizza mozzarella melts, browns, bubbles, and tastes just like a great cheese should, with 98% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than traditional animal milk mozzarellas. Why does your mozzarella matter? Because if dairy farms were a country, they'd be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Americans eat over 3 billion pizzas a year. That's a huge opportunity to make a difference. The Miyoko Solution, delicious cheese made sustainably from plant milk. Founded by renowned vegan chef Miyoko Shinner, Miyoko's is the world's most advanced plant milk creamery, pioneering the art of combining old-world cheese-making techniques with new, innovative technology to craft mouth-watering cheeses and butters. To learn more about delicious liquid vegan pizza mozzarella, follow Miyoko's Creamery on social and visit miyokos.com today. Use the code MODERNIST to get 15% off your next order. 